Acts 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Father, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity you give us to be under your word. We're grateful that you have revealed for us your desire, your will, your heart, so that we can know you. I pray now that you would remind us of gospel truths. Would you encourage our hearts through your word? Your word is life-giving. It is perfect, reviving the soul. It gives wisdom to those who are simple. It directs us as light on our path. And I pray that you would give me the right words to speak to encourage your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as Rod was getting away for the week, I had the wonderful opportunity to study, and Rod doesn't know this, but for me, it was actually extreme joy to do so. I've been out of the pulpit for a number of months now, and it was just enjoyable to be studying the Word, and honestly, I didn't know the kind of effect it would have upon my life to be back in that weekly grind of sermon preparation. Um, And so, as we are looking at our passage this morning, there are many things that we're going to see in it, and Before we even dive into the text, I just wanted to say how great it was that we could rehearse the gospel through the songs that we sang, right? The second song was about justification. Christ took our place. The first song is sanctification, Christ in me, doing the work. And then the last song is he's going to hold us fast until the very end when we're going to be with Christ for eternity. He will hold us fast. And so um, I want to take you back to the year 2000. Some of you might remember, some of you were young at that time. It was the year that Bush became president, the Concord crashed, and rolling blackouts were all over California for a couple years. It was also the year before uh, the war in Iraq and the year after 2000, entering the new millennium, when there was nothing on the shelves for a number of months, and everyone was scared what's going to happen when the clock strikes 12. It was a memorable time, probably forever imprinted in our minds, but there's something else that was happening in the year 2000. There's a man named John Piper preaching a sermon to thousands of college students at Passion One Day Conference. It was a sermon that would, to a certain degree, become synonymous with desiring God. Don't waste your life. This was one of the seeds that were sown that would become the Young, Restless, and Reform movement of the mid-2000s. 
a time when young people in America who became Christians were sitting in church in the pews and who repented and made a confession of faith started asking the question, is there more to Christianity than this? Is there something deeper beyond just the programs and attendance of church? And they, of course, started Googling and asking these questions, and they came across the Reformation, they came across John Calvin and Martin Luther, and were exposed to a great and glorious and sovereign God. But what did John Piper preach on May 20th in the year 2000? The whole point was simply this. Live a life that matters. There are things that are more important and more weighty than what are you going to wear, where you're going to sleep, what food you're going to eat. And what he was really doing was challenging the notions of the American dream, that life is more than just comfort and possessions, that there are things that matter for eternity, that there is a greater cause. And in the sermon, he contrasted two stories that will be forever embedded in my mind, a story of the retired couple in their 50s who sailed on their 50-foot trawler and collected seashells at the beach, and two older ladies who were doing work and serving in Cameroon, Africa, bringing the gospel to the unreached, the poor, and the sick. And they die when the brakes on the bus give out and they fly over a cliff. So a purposeful life and then a wasted life. And he closed with a punchline and he said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. And as I hear these words, I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul who said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. See, Paul was willing to live and die for the gospel. And our passage this morning echoes this, for not only does Paul preach and encourage the saints, but as we read, he was stoned because he was on the path that Christ called him to. Because his goal was to make Christ known where he had not been known before. And so Paul, closing his first missionary journey in our passage this morning, I want you to look at verse 26, because this is the key verse that we see that we can use to summarize the passage. Something was coming to a conclusion here, and it's found in verse 26, where Paul and Barnabas, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now fulfilled. They fulfilled a work that God had called them to do. You see, Paul was mastered by a few things, Christ and his gospel. And as I look at this passage this morning, I cannot help think about how we are the continuation of the work that began in the book of Acts. That we're ambassadors of Christ, we're the light of the world, the salts of the earth, calling people to be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors representing God's character, his message, and his methods. And what Paul is continuing to do here is what the church is called to do. Christ himself says, as you all know in the Great Commission, as you go, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. And this is exactly what we're going to see in our passage. We're going to see the Great Commission lived out through the life of the Apostle Paul, and I want to call you to continue to do that. Acts displays for us how quickly the gospel can spread among a region, the power of the gospel. It shows us the continuing work of the ascended Christ, It shows us economic, social, and racial barriers that are broken. It shows that how the gospel strips humanity of of all their baggage, their culture, religion, identity, and it levels the playing field and makes us all one in Christ. And this is what is exciting. This is why we have a great commission. 
because God is alive and he's doing a great work in the lives of people, transforming people like in the Gospel of John. Everyone who encountered Christ, they came away different. They were never the same again. Christ is the doctor for those who are sick. Christ is glorified when the medicine of the gospel is administered. And this is what Paul is doing. He's carrying that beacon of hope, the gospel, throughout that whole region. My desire this morning as we look at this passage is that we would realign our focus with Christ's focus. As uh, as Pastor Rod was reading from Colossians, it's true. Our gaze is to be at Christ, but oh, how hard that can sometimes be. With the fog that gets in the way, with the busyness of life, with the responsibilities that we have. I want us to see the weight and beauty of what Christ is calling us to do. And so this passage is going to challenge us to a certain degree to live for his glory, to not waste our life, and to show us that we all have a part in this work. Not everyone's going to evangelize, but a larger number can edify. But we're all part of the work of the Great Commission. And so this passage, in this passage, Paul, or Luke, is illustrating for us what suffering and what is suffering, right, the cost of faith and suffering that is demanded of us, what, obedi- what obedience demands. And so the call that I want to call you to, which is part of the proposition this morning, is persevere in the Great Commission through opposition. Persevere in the Great Commission, and then your flyer says in the midst of, but I changed that, through opposition, just flows better. So persevere. You see, when opposition comes our way like it did here in this passage, our obedience is tested. Not so much when things are going well. Obedience isn't tested as much, but when things get harder, then our obedience really is tested. But when we look at Christ and we see him at the helm, we can press on. So there's four things that I want to just remind you this morning and call you to. So one, persevere in the Great Commission through opposition, and four reasons why. Because it's Christ's mission, because it's Christ's gospel, because it's Christ's church, and because it's Christ's faithfulness. He is doing this work. And so this passage is broken down based off of the locations that Paul is traveling to. There's four areas that he is going to be traveling through, and we're going to see four parts of this gospel growth. Churches like are often measured by numerical growth or modernity, but we want to ask the question, how is the gospel growing and expanding in this passage? And so first of all, we persevere in the Great Commission through opposition because it's Christ's mission. And we see that in the first couple of verses. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I don't believe Paul was surprised when he got stoned. He probably heard from Peter already on the last night before Christ's death when Christ was telling them what is going to happen. When Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Not only that, he probably heard it from Christ himself. The Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering and persecution are inevitable in the mission of Christ because there is no other way. As we look at Christianity through the corridor of history, what we see is a long list of martyrs that continues to grow. People who have laid down their life for the sake of the gospel. But it's interesting how this persecution 
is happening. There's a strong contrast between these passages. We first see that there is this moment when they come to Lystra and they heal a man and they are praised and the people say the gods have come to us. And now, so quickly, Paul is persecuted and stoned. You see, the city of Lystra was mainly Gentiles. They took the apostles to be God, but crowds are fickle. So here we have a group, as we read in our passage, The Jews that came from Antioch, the unbelieving Jews of the earlier beginning of this chapter, they persuaded the crowds. They won the crowds over. We don't know exactly what they were saying, but maybe along the lines of, if we think of the gods that they worship, they worship a god to receive something from the god. And the the Jews probably said, you're not going to get much from Paul. (laughs) What you're going to get in salvation is not a comfortable, easy life, but actually the opposite Christ will heal you in certain ways, but there is some greater responsibility that you're going to have to carry. And so they quickly turn on him, and this angry mob stones him. They're so angry, they don't stone him outside of the city. They stone him inside of the city and then have to carry him out. And this act is so brutal that it says here that they suppose that he was dead. And if this is where the story ended, what an ending what an ending it would be to the first missionary journey of God's chosen instruments and vessel, the Apostle Paul. We would suppose the gospel is done. But this is God's work. There's always a but God in everything that happens in life. And so it is in the life of Paul. But God did a miracle. Christ steps in. The story turns. He's alive. The disciples gather around him probably to mourn the gospel bearer, but he rose up and entered the city as if to say, God is greater. What a surprise and a miracle and a turn to the story. It's because God is the greater actor in this whole narrative. As we begin in the beginning of the missionary journey in chapter 13, what we find is that the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas. Paul is the one who's filled with the Holy Spirit when he rebukes Elymas. In Paul's sermon, God chose the Father, God leads the people out of Egypt. God gives judges. God brings Israel a savior. God raises Christ from the dead. God is actively working. God often works really in unpredictable and contrary ways to man, doesn't he? He works in the way that he works to accomplish that, which we would not be able to accomplish on our own. Ultimately, to say that you cannot boast in anything because I am doing this work. And later on, as Paul is already older. He's writing to Timothy. He recounts the situation. And this is exactly what he says. He says, the Lord rescued me. He's writing to Timothy. And as Timothy is listening to these words, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. This is the passage we're looking at today. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. The Lord rescued me. He intervened. I'm just a jar of clay and all the power belongs to the Lord. I'm just a vessel and he will use me as he wills. In Corinthians, he says something similar. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And later on, he answers the reason why. How is this possible? He says, because of the resurrection. A few verses later, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
This passage that is full of affliction, despair, crushing, striking down, prior to that is a whole chapter about the new covenant and what Christ is doing through the new covenant, how it's greater. And it's sandwiched in what is following, which is the resurrection. And this is why the work can continue. This is what we were celebrating last Sunday. Paul didn't wilt under pressure. The next day he goes to Derby, but it is no longer because it's no longer safe for him in Lystra. And here's a principle that we see from this passage, that suffering always precedes glory. Suffering always precedes glory. Paul, later on in a few verses, is going to be telling the disciples that through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom. It's through tribulations, not around tribulations, not over tribulations, not under tribulations, but through tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Suffering is not in the fine print of the job description when signing up to follow Christ. It's one of the main descriptions. It's God's method of how we should live because it always keeps us dependent on him. And if God, as one writer says, gives us a Red Sea, he'll provide a boat, he'll build a bridge, he'll let you swim, or he's going to part the sea like he did with the people of Israel. God is going to provide a way. Now, why was Paul able to do this? As I was looking through these verses, yes, we realize it's Christ's mission. That's the only reason that Paul is actually getting persecuted because he's being obedient to Jesus. If he wasn't obedient to Jesus, he would not be persecuted at this moment. But why was Paul able to do this? It's because he was obedient. Because obedience causes you to be in places where you might not have otherwise decided to go. Obedience causes hardships. Because God calls us to live and do things that are contrary to the methods and the mindset of this world. Is that not true? God calls you to live in such a way that is different from the mindset of this world and live in a different way from this world. And more specifically, it's faith and obedience to fulfill the Great Commission. This obedience includes sacrifice. It includes discomfort. It includes boldness. And we see how God is using Paul now, where previously he used Peter in the first 12 chapters. Now he's using Paul in chapter 13 and onward, someone who is consecrated to him. And if Paul had a John Newton in his life, he would probably sing one of the verses of the hymn Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace is going to lead me home. And secondly, I believe Paul was able to do this because he saw the worth of Christ. As a rabbi, rabbi is a teacher of teachers, right? One who knew all of the Old Testament yet missed the crimson thread of the Old Testament, which was Christ. He comes into contact with the glorious Christ in chapter 9. And he says, Lord, what do you call me to do? Paul saying, how could I serve anyone else? Who's more glorious What other work do I have to do in my life than what you have called me to do? Everything else takes a lesser, is of a lesser degree than what you have called me to do, which is proclaim the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. There's no greater message because, as John says, he's the bread of life, that Jesus is the true vine, the resurrection and life and the light of the world. Before we move on to our next point, I want to ask you, how are you doing this morning when it comes to times of obedience, specifically in the Great Commission? Is your mindset that of seeking comfort or are you ready for discomfort? 
Do you shy away from gospel opportunities, or are you bold in proclaiming Christ where he has planted you? And what is your view of suffering? Do you see that suffering is the inevitable part of the Christian life, specifically when we stand out because we believe in a whole different worldview that comes from Scripture? And I'm, un- I'm challenged by this as much as you are challenged by this. It's not always easy. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's not always easy to share the gospel knowing that someone is an atheist, someone grew up in religion, but now they hate it because they had a bitter experience through it. But we are jars of clay and we have the gospel. He supplies all that we need. He has equipped us to do this work. We have the spirit within. We have the church that is around us. This way we've gathered here to rehearse the gospel. And we have plenty of those who have gone before. Now, now think about what would have happened if Paul was not obedient to Christ's command. You see, the following verses would not have occurred. If Paul simply was stoned and he said, well, I can't handle this any longer, and he put his hands down, and he was tired, and he said, well, someone else can do this work. But we see the consequences or the fruit of this obedience. There's gospel proclamation. He goes to Derby and he preaches, and he makes disciples, and people are saved. He helps those who are saints to persevere. He encourages them. We see that when he comes back to Antioch, the people's faith in God grows. And so first, we persevere in the Great Commission through opposition because it's Christ's mission. And the reality is, is when we're on mission, life is going to be hard. We're going to be persecuted. But also because it's Christ's gospel. We persevere because it's Christ's gospel. Unbelievers are going to be saved. And so we look in verse 20 now, in the second half, into verse 21. He rose up and entered the city. And here it is, on the next day, he continued what he did the day before. He continued to do that work of making disciples. He went on with Barnabas to Derby, And what do they do? When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Derby is about 60 miles southeast of Lystra. You have it uh, on your maps. It's approximately the distance from here to Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. You might go there on occasion, especially now it's getting closer to summer. So it would take a few days' journey to get there, and Paul, with his bruises and his pain, he is continuing in his path. Because the gospel is a diamond, and we as the church are the prongs that uphold that diamond. We are all about the gospel. As Pastor Rod says, we're unashamedly about the gospel. Every single Sunday, we proclaim the gospel of Christ. How do people hear the gospel? This is the question that Paul asks in in Romans. He says, how are people going to come to the faith? Where does it begin? Well, they need someone who's going to be sent. And then someone who's going to preach. And they're going to preach about Christ, the message of Christ. I want to introduce a few stages of discipleship that we see in our passage. There's outreach, follow-up, growth, and training. Paul's in the outreach stage right now. Now, of course, this is, wasn't there at Paul's time where he was going by these stages, okay? We finished outreach, now we're moving to follow-up, now we're going to growth, and we're going to training. But it helps us understand that the Great Commission goes beyond simply evangelism because there's a clause in the Great Commission that says, you need to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so there's a growth aspect as well. There's a training aspect as well. And here we see the outreach aspect when Paul shows up to Derby, and that's his MO. He's going to come with the gospel. He has one singular message. 
He's been called and commissioned to this, and it's Christ's gospel. And as we think about the gospel, I want to remind us that the gospel is not law, but grace. It's not flesh, but spirit. It's not works, but faith. It's not do, but done. It's not advice, but news. It's not Jesus plus something equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's not a promise that life will get better when you believe health and wealth, but it's a promise that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of heaven. And when it comes to the obligations of faith, it's not passive either. Following Christ is not sitting in first class on the airplane as you are coasting into eternity with God. What it is, is obedience. There's a soldier on the ground fulfilling the commander's orders. And so he preaches and a miracle happens. You guys see that miracle here in this verse? What does it say? When they had preached the gospel, they had made what? Many disciples. People got saved. That's the miracle of the gospel. People moving from darkness to light. This is the first step. People need to hear the gospel clearly articulated for them to believe. I think at times there's this common phrase that goes around in churches or Christianity which says something along the lines of this. Preach with your life, and if necessary, use words. Well, I want to ask you, what's the difference between your life and the life of uh, an upright, morally upright unbeliever or a Mormon? We're always around these religious people who are doing good things, philanthropic work, they're serving their community, they're cleaning up. We don't only preach with our lives, that is a byproduct of our faith in Christ, is obedience to him and living out our faith, but we preach with words. In the last two chapters, from chapters 13 to 14, we see eight times Paul is preaching, he's speaking. Either it says it's the word of the Lord, he's speaking boldly, or he's preaching the gospel. Paul is speaking about Christ. People can see a beautiful sunrise or a sunset. The general revelation is not enough to save them. They need special revelation of God's word, who he is. And so there's a proclamation that Christ is the only risen Savior from the dead. And so what happens when these people believe? Naturally, they're going to be baptized. That's the next step. And Paul teaches them the basic truths about Christ and God. But there is most likely a follow-up stage. And I just wanted to add some practical application for us when it comes to follow-up. You see, when we, when we speak of the gospel, when we share the gospel, at times we think, uh, or we might have grown up to think, that it's like a one-shot from the double-barrel gun. You just shoot it once with the gospel, they heard it, and then they believe, and I move on, I did my work. But oftentimes, more than that, as we've heard through the book of Acts, it's God drawing people slowly. And God is working on the people who are around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our unbelieving children, our unbelieving parents. He is slowly doing the work, and we continue to sow the seed of the gospel. We communicate from Scripture who God is, what He's doing, what He's done, how He has been faithful. There are many places where this can happen. In the Great Commission, Paul is obviously in Derby, he's in Lystra, he's in Antioch, and as we continue the work of gospel growth, we're in the places where God has planted us. He's placed you there to be the light, and He gives you great joy. It gives great it get. God gets great joy and glory from this. Dane Ortland, in a book, Gentle and Lowly, he shares how the heavens and Christ are overjoyed when a sinner comes to repentance because this is the whole reason why Christ came. 
They, look at this illustration that he shares. He gives an example and he says, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in, he has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation, but as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. That's the whole reason why Christ came, to administer the medicine of the gospel to those who are sick, those who need a physician. And so you have a testimony to share. John's gospel is full of narratives of people who encountered Christ, whose lives were changed, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the blind man, Lazarus, just to name a few. And so we persevere in the Great Commission through opposition because it's Christ's mission. And secondly, because it's Christ's gospel, and because it's the gospel and believers will be saved. But thirdly, because it's Christ's church. Because it's Christ's church. As we continue reading, we see in our passage that believers are going to be strengthened and churches are going to be established. Beginning with verse 21, it says, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And the question becomes, well, why are they going backwards? If you look on your map, you'll see that they were just in Derby, and if they wanted to get to Antioch, they just could have gone across the top of the Mediterranean. That would be down right on your map. But instead, they actually go backwards through the cities, specifically the places where Paul was persecuted and stoned. And it is because Paul and Barnabas are not simply about evangelism. The Great Commission goes beyond evangelism. Often, we see the fruits of the Great Commission being only evangelism, and this is what it leads to. It leads to 5,000 people professing to receive Christ at an evangelizing event, and then only 100 are left five years later who are actually attending church. It leads to 90% of pastors in the world not having any kind of formal education. It leads to Christianity in certain parts of the world being 1,000 miles wide and one inch deep. The phrase is, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is a lifelong venture. It's going to take your whole life to observe, to live out, to apply, which is what Gateway is all about. No, apply. Give me the last one, please. What is it? What's the vision? Proclaim. There we go. Teaching to, to observe all that I've commanded you. And this is where most of us are at. We're into this growth stage where there's people in our life like, like Paul who are coming and Paul's doing four things here. He's encouraging them. He's, he's strengthening them. And we'll, look, we'll get to that. But Paul is doing this and he's taking the longer path because their goal was not to get home quickly. Their goal was not to be comfortable. It wasn't to quickly finish the job, but to finish the pastoral task that they were commissioned for to make sure that their hard work was for nothing, that it was not for nothing. They water the seed of faith. They continue to teach, encourage, and strengthen. I think of them as a good coach who continues to teach his team, come alongside his team, and tell his team to press on. We got this. Because later we read in Galatians what happened. Paul was guarding from the Galatian dilemma, where he says, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? How have you so quickly 
deterred or moved to another gospel, which is not a gospel. So he needs to come back through these cities and establish them to appoint elders in these cities so that the church can be established and grow. And so let's look at each of these four parts of what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And we see it here begins in verse 22 with strengthening the souls of the disciples. And so in the work that they're doing, they're helping believers to persevere. It's Christ's church, is it not? So they're strengthening the disciples. To strengthen is to cause someone to become stronger or more firm, and specifically in the commitment to their faith. With all four of these, we're going to use the analogy of a race. Paul and Barnabas are coming alongside them, and they're saying, yes, you're facing some trouble, right? If they probably stoned Paul, there's probably other opposition in in, in, uh, in Lystra. So they're coming alongside of them and they're saying, stand firm in the faith, stand firm in this race. Don't turn to the left or to the right, stay on the narrow path. Yes, continue to be there because Christ is with you. Don't veer off, but stay firm in the faith. Keep your commitment to Christ. Yes, it can get hard, but you have professed Christ, so now live for Christ. Opposition is only what is going to do is to strengthen your faith. It's going to show you that you are truly a believer. The second thing that they do is they encourage the disciples. They encourage the disciples, which means to strongly urge, to appeal, to exhort. And what they're saying is, look at the finish line. Look at the finish line. You know what you've signed up for. Yes, it's hard, but look to Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith, because Christ already went through this in his life. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And then he sat down in victory at the right hand of the Father. And so look to the finish line. He's encouraged them. Press on. This is the whole book of, of Hebrew summarized In just one phrase, press on, because Christ is better. Christ is better than angels. He's the better high priest. He's the better sacrifice. So you can continue, even amidst persecution. Although your hands become droopy and your knees are buckling, you press on. And then he is reminding them. He is saying that through many tribulations we must enter. He is reminding them of the difficulties, the suffering, Because of what? Because of the loyalty to your faith. Because you're loyal to Christ. You live live by a different set of rules and standards. You got to be aware that as you're running, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be barriers. And the reason why is because you're in the race. You see, the reason why Paul had barriers and obstacles in his life as we're reading his life story in the book of Acts, because he's on the race, because he's obedient to Jesus, And so if we follow in the footsteps of Christ, then Paul and the many men and women who have gone down through the time of history, this is what's going to happen as well. The natural thing is that tribulations, through many many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. And lastly, what they do is they entrust, or they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They entrusted the disciples. And what they said is, yes, stand firm in the race, you got to look to the finish line. you got to be aware that as you're running, there's going to be obstacles. But lastly, remember this. There's one who is with you on this race. Know that Christ is with you in it. 
They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, when did they commit them to this? How did they commit them to it? They didn't just let the church just move on and and flow the way that it would want. No, what they did before that, before they committed them, they had appointed elders for them in every church. Appointed elders. Elders are a beautiful thing. The gray-haired. They appointed some gray-haired people there. Gray-haired, those who are wise. And we see three interchangeable words in the New Testament. There is the, the elder who is one who is wise. There is the shepherd who guides the sheep, who goes before them. And then there's also the overseer who watches over the flock. And so before they're going to leave from these cities, from Iconium, Antioch, and Lystra, they're going to leave men, elders, which is always in the plural in the New Testament. It's never one. It's always a plurality of elders so that they can shepherd the flock of God that God has given them because it's not their flock. It's because it is the flock that Christ purchased with his blood. And so they equip the elders, the elders that each church needs, and it's a joy to have them here at Gateway because through eldership, through polarity, there's accountability, there's strength. There is help. And so it's Christ's church, and so we persevere in the Great Commission. Now, when it comes to speaking about outreach and follow-up and growth, which is what Paul is doing in this last section, I think at times when we talk about evangelism, we think, well, I'm not necessarily gifted for that, or it's hard for me to talk to people, or follow-up, well, I, maybe, maybe I don't have the time and my neighbors are, are when I'm working, they're working, we never really see each other. But we're talking about growth. We're talking about encouragement, as we read here, strengthening, uh, encouraging. <clears throat> and these are all the things that, as we're reading here, this is not just in this passage. There are 61 and others in the New Testament that call all believers to do that. All of the, all of the commands in the books that we read, like Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, they're all in the plural, where Paul is speaking to the church, and he says, church, you come and you help each other and come alongside each other to do this work. You encourage each other. You help a brother who has stumbling in his faith. You do this work. We see that the reason why we can do this, the reason why we can say to one another, press on in this race, stand firm. I know you're going through hardship and opposition, but look to the finish line. Don't forget that there's barriers. You're going to experience tribulation, but know that Christ is with you. The reason why we can do this because this is God's design for the church. In Ephesians 4, God gives a gift the pastor, teacher, to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry. He equips from the word of God, giving you the tools to go home and to do the work of the ministry with your children, with your spouse. And when you come together in small groups or one-on-one meetings or discipleship, we've narrowed discipleship simply to like a one-on-one meeting. It's beyond that. You're getting discipled now as you're hearing the word. When you meet one-on-one, you're discipled. You're discipled at a small group. You're discipled because you're growing into a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're equipped for the work of ministry, and you are a tool in the Redeemer's hand. You're saying, I'm a person in need of change. And as I look around the room, I see a a group of people who are also in need of change, and I want God to use me as an instrument to, to help others so that they can help me. In this work of growth, we are all a part of. 
The word is the tool that we speak to each other. This is what we often need to hear when we ask the question, how can you strengthen, how can you encourage? It's from the word of God. We speak about who God is and what God has done and what he is doing. My wife and I, sometimes when we leave from a fellowship, there's two ways that we leave. Filled or empty and sometimes neutral. And what I mean by that, sometimes you come to a fellowship whether that be a dinner with friends, whether that just be a hangout at the park with the kids, and you leave being encouraged. You leave being strengthened, saying, yes, it's hard that you wake up five times at night and your kid wakes up for a two-hour span at night and it's hard to start the workday. Yes, but press on. You're making disciples of Christ. Press on because this is the work that God has called you to do as a parent. Keep going at it. Or you're talking to someone and they're saying that they are having a hard co-worker or someone is making it difficult for them to work, or making fun of them that they're a believer, or whatever it is, and you say, you know that the gospel is more powerful, that the gospel can convert them and change their life because it's the gospel of Christ, and you leave from that fellowship, that gathering, encouraged because you've just experienced strengthening and encouragement. And there's other times where you come to a fellowship and you leave, and, and Anne and I would look to ourselves and we say, we desire more, we want more. Speak to us. Speak truth into our life. And this is what the Paul and Barnabas were doing to the church, and this is the big picture of what we see in the New Testament, the church doing that with one another. May this be the flavor of our conversations. Now, lastly, as we persevere in the Great Commission through opposition, we, we're doing so because it's Christ's mission, and naturally will be persecuted. We do so because it's Christ's gospel, and so unbelievers are going to be saved. We we persevere because it's Christ's church, so believers are going to be strengthened. And lastly, it's because it's Christ's faithfulness. It's Christ's faithfulness. You will always have a good report, so proclaim. Luke is closing this narrative that he began in chapter 13, in verse 1, when they were commissioned to go do the work. So go bring the gospel into areas that are yet unreached. And this is one of Paul's first missionary journeys, but surely not his last They send them off and they come back, sent off from Antioch. They sail back to Antioch and they give a report of what God has done. And Luke is reminding us that the work of discipleship has a high return. You see, sometimes it's hard, but we remember, right, what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, you're like a farmer. You sow the seeds and you wait. The gospel always has a high yield. God's word does not come back vain. When we sow the seed of the gospel, there is great fruit. And so Paul is coming back to Antioch and he's bringing this good report that look what the gospel is doing and look what it has already done. We must never lose hope in this disciple-making process that nothing is happening. It is his mission, it's his gospel, and it is his church. And so they're naturally returning and given a report. Now, what did this report consist of? Well, first of all, let's see what happened prior to the report. In verse 24 and 25, they're just coming back through the following cities after they went to Antioch and Lystra and Iconium. They passed through Pisidia and come to Pamphylia. They speak the word in Perga again. They speak the word, the word about Christ. 
and then they went down to Attilia, and from there, from Attilia, they sailed to Antioch. And we come back to the key verse, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now fulfilled. They just fulfilled it. And so when they arrive, they gather the church together. They say, church, we have, a, we, have a good, we have good news. We have a report. Look what Christ is doing. Just like what Christ is doing in Bolivia or what Christ is doing in Ukraine or what Christ is doing in India or what Christ is doing in the UK. What is, what is Christ doing? And it's so exciting to hear. This is why missions is so important. It's exciting to hear what God is doing in the world. That is gospel is still penetrating hearts. It's still changing lives. And so they come together, declare a few things. The first thing that they say is what God has done. The report consists of, they declared what? All that God had done. Paul and Barnabas didn't come back and say, Barnabas saying to Paul, well, that was a killer sermon, Paul. Obviously, people would have believed because that was so good. Your homiletical propositions were alliterated. They were catchy. It was fitting to the context of uh, the people at Lystra. You know, they're Gentiles, so thank you for using that illustration. It really fit in. They weren't saying, well, look how strong we are. I started going to the gym, and, you know, I got stoned, and I came out, and I was totally fine. Everything is totally okay. It was all my work. No, what they realize is that this is God's work. This is what God is doing. They declared all that God had done. He is the main actor. He's always been the main actor, beginning from Genesis, when men failed. And he made the promise that there's going to be a seed who's going to come, who's going to bless the nations. And since that moment and prior to that, in eternity past, there's been a plan of salvation that has continued, and God has been working it through Exodus and through the judges and the prophets and through the quiet time of 400 years until Christ comes, and he continues it with Christ coming and his ascension and then the continued work in the book of Acts. And it's spreading to this day. See, God is doing this work. He begins it. He completes it. And God had done it with them or through them. God used them as the instruments. They were just ambassadors of the gospel. Just like Paul calls the church in Corinthians, we are to proclaim the gospel. He's calling them. We're ambassadors representing God, urging people be reconciled with God. He's saying God used us to do that. He also opened a door, thirdly, to the Gentiles. The gospel's on display from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now Paul has reached the ends of the earth. Now for us, if we're thinking we need to send people off somewhere really far to do missions work, we realize that the ends of the earth is California. It's probably just as far as you can get from Jerusalem as possible. This is our place. This is the melting pot. This is where we see all cultures come together, where we can preach the gospel. And so the church is established. The church is then scattered through the persecution in Jerusalem, and then the church is now extended. So Paul is saying, look what God has done. Look how glorious he is. Look how glorious the gospel is. You know, I remember moments like this in my own life, and you've experienced, I know, in your life, where <clears throat> after you might have evangelized or shared the gospel with somebody, or you went to do, to do some uh, missionary work in a different country and you came back, you, you have a good report and you want to share that. You're excited. And what we used to do, many years ago, was we used to do this thing called free prayer. We have a sign, and on that sign it said, free prayer. You know, it's people usually standing on the street asking for money. Well, we're offering something for free. Who wants prayer? <laughs> and we get a variety of people coming over. Yeah, we have single moms, we have teenagers. There's just a group, different groups of people coming over and, and talking to us, saying, well, I was going to church, but I stopped because this and this happened in my life. 
Or, yeah, I was going to believe in Christianity, but I knew this Christian, so, so, and so that deterred me, and I don't, I don't really like going to church. We'd be talking to different people, and after about an hour and a half, two hours, whether we're in downtown Hayward at a busy shopping center, like a Safeway in Castro Valley, or we're over here just a few blocks away in San Leandro, we'd come back together, and there's a group of like 20 of us, and we'd ask each group that there's usually one, two, or three people standing together, each group share. Share what it was like to share the gospel. Because if someone asks for prayer, they're inevitably sharing their needs. And through our prayers, we're able to speak about Christ in our prayers and have them hear that Christ is, is the Savior, that Christ is sufficient. Or if they were open, we would share the gospel, invite them to church. And we'd come back together and each group would share. And it was miraculous to hear what God is doing. We didn't have to go to a different country. I didn't have to fly on a plane for 15 hours. I just had to walk down the street and be intentional with how I use my time in my life. And we saw the fruit of that. There'd be people who'd break down in front of us and began weeping because we were like the third person who would come to them speaking about Christ and they saw that God is orchestrating something in their life. There'd be people coming to us saying, we're so grateful that you have bought groceries for us. I had no money left and you helped us out. Ultimately, all the help that we do is to then share is to share the gospel. But this is the report, and this is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're coming together and saying, the door to the Gentiles has been open. The plan of salvation is, is coming to fulfillment. Christ is doing his work. They remained, at the end of this passage, with the disciples for a little while. And, of course, they're taking a the time to break, taking maybe a sabbatical after getting still and preaching all the time. They're like, we need some rest. So they remain with the disciples and hopefully they were the ones who were encouraging them and strengthening them. But we see here the beautiful picture of what Christ is doing in the Great Commission. How God is using Paul and Barnabas to go and to preach, to outreach, to give growth and then also to train people to do that same work. Because then later on in a few chapters, we hear of this young man named Timothy that they pick up from the same city, right? In Lystra. And they take Timothy and they train him and then Timothy goes and does the work and he's in Ephesus for a while. This is what God is doing. And he says, church, be a part of this. He, the church, this is what I called you to do. This is, this is what we're all about. As we think about this, how can we not respond with trust in what God is doing? Reliance on him, perseverance, for he is faithful. We can persevere in the Great Commission through opposition because... Christ really is glorious. It's his church, it's his gospel, it's his mission, and he is faithful to fulfill it because he says, I lo, I'm with you until what? The end of the age. And so opposition has a way to draw us, to give up, to retract, but we see here Paul is different. He's firm in the faith, he presses on. Because when we see Christ at the helm, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, for every look at self, look 10 times at Christ. The look into Christ, that Christ is doing this. Opposition for us today might not be stoning. It doesn't always have to be something negative. You know what I realize in my life? That what opposition is is simply it's a barrier. And let me tell you, Satan is extremely creative of creating barriers in our life. Satan is extremely creative not producing, not producing direct confrontation, but complacency. You know, good things can become at times, bad things because they become ruling things, they become something that begins to control our life, things that are a barrier. They're the good things, but they take away from the best thing. 
a good life could make us complacent and forget about the Great Commission, which becomes a great omission. Comfort can become an opposition to gospel growth because we don't really want to, it's uncomfortable, i got to step out of my comfort zone and say something to someone or share the gospel. And so the devil, he is sly. Especially where we live in the country that we live in, oftentimes he can take away us from the focus with the busyness of things in life instead of maybe the hardships of life. So it's important for us this morning as a church because we want to be on guard, constantly checking our hearts and our minds. Are we on track with what God is trying to do? And that's what we've been studying through the book of Acts. What is God doing? He's proclaiming and lifting up Christ and saying, here is Christ, my son, who is the Savior. I want to close with this illustration. I uh, was able to go to India three years ago, 2019, July. It's the first time I went somewhere outside of uh, North America and got on a plane, 35-hour flight all the way to Vijaywada, India. We stayed there for a couple days and then we went out to the outskirts into the, uh, into the uh, villages. And I went with this uh, organization called Training Leaders International. And the whole point of this organization is to train, it's to make disciples, it's to train pastors so that when we leave after a three-year program, they can continue to do the work. We trained pastors, we played cricket, I ate rice with my hands, it was somewhat of a culture shock. It was fun, I would love to go back. But what was more impactful to me, what was the church was all about. In a very Hindu-heavy culture, Christianity does not assimilate well for those transitioning to Christianity because it's seen as a rejection of your culture and your heritage. And what was the church doing there? They would gather for events, call people in the village, come and hear about Christ. They'd evangelize. And then they would disciple. They would disciple men. They would spot out and see men who are called by God or who are desiring to grow. They would take him. They would train him through the scriptures. There were 60 pastors there at that time when I was there. We divided into two classrooms, and we taught through the gospel of Mark, how Jesus is a servant. And uh, it was a very enjoyable time, and I, I flew back, and for me, it was just a glass of fresh water. Because where I'm from, I grew up, I'm used to programs and events to build the church. They're used to teens programs, kids programs, <clears throat> sports centers. What are we going to do with a sports center? And it's not like any of those things are bad things. Those are, those are good things. They help us help the church to grow when we have organized activities through which we can grow. But for me, as I was driving on the San Mateo Bridge, driving home for me, it was just such a uh, clear light and just a glass of fresh water that the church in India was just all about evangelism and discipleship. All they really cared about was how can we get the gospel out and then how can we establish people in the gospel so that they can live it out. And so that they can then do that same work evangelizing and spread out and reach the people who are in India who serve thousands of gods and everything is a god there. How do we, how do, we do that? And for me, it was a shedding of this extra baggage and I came back home, I remember in July, just with this fresh and this clear perspective. This is what we're supposed to be about as a church. Because I was taken out of, out of this place uh, of business, out of this place of, of programs and, and things got cut away and I got to see clearly and that is the Great Commission. So I hope that the study through Acts has been so for you. It really sheds a lot of the extras in life and helps us to focus on the main thing. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't say you have to do this and do what Paul says and do exactly, you know, follow exactly the, blue, the uh, way of Acts, but it's a blueprint. It, it shows us how the initial church lived 
And so we're inevitably tied up to this because as we are going, we're making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. And as we noted in the beginning, you, as John Piper says, I want to close with the same quote, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and then, we, and then be willing to live for them and to die for them. And Paul was, Paul was, and we continue in a long line of godly men and women who were passed on the baton of the gospel and they've given it to us today. And this is what we're about as a church, to lift up the diamond of the gospel and the rough places that we're at. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Thank you, Lord. We thank you so much that your word is so encouraging, that it is life-giving, that it really helps us to realign our focus on you and on Christ, your son, to see that he is the sufficient savior for the world. We thank you for the examples of Paul and Barnabas in the midst of opposition and hardship, they were firm in the faith. We thank you for their example of how they were encouraging and establishing the churches. We see God that your work is continuing and may our ears be open to hear your voice. May we continually be obedient to you. May we test our own hearts to see if there are any barriers to gospel growth, to see if there are any barriers that keep you from using us how you would want to in the places that you have planted us. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.